passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. have a Bible, I invite you to open up to... Uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 3 through 5 this morning. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. I mentioned last week that we are going to be going through verses 1 through 8 over the course of about a month or so. And uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to just follow along. We're actually going to read verses 1 through 8 together in a chunk just to kind of remind ourselves of the context of what Paul is writing here in 2 Timothy. So 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths." As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." Amen. Well, this morning's uh, passage, these few verses here in verses 3 through 5, they're a continuation of last week, uh, but they're also connected to next week's passage as well. So verses 6 through 8, Paul is kind of giving this, this final snapshot of his life. He's telling Timothy that he has finished the race, and yet in our passage this morning, he's really saying, hey, hey Timothy, uh, uh, while I've finished the race, I want you to run the race. And this morning, he's, he's talking about this idea of Timothy fulfilling his ministry. And, and next week, he says, you know what, Timothy, I've, I've fulfilled the ministry that God has entrusted to me. And those three words, fulfill your ministry, is really what I want us to just consider this morning. It's the heartbeat of this text. Because Paul is, is urging Timothy, and by extension, he's really urging each and every one of us to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to us. To fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to you. You have a part to play in the work that God is doing here in our community, in our world. There is a part for you to play. You have been entrusted with a ministry. Literally, the word here is just service. That God has something for you to do in his work here in our world. And this is absolutely going to look different for different people. Timothy's calling is one that is very unique. He is serving as a pastor. He is serving as a missionary. So the specifics of this passage, they're, they're kind of focused on a word-based ministry, but the heart of this text really is for each and every one of us to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to each and every one of us. And so as we work our way through this passage and we consider this text, I want us to first notice that Paul acknowledges the setting of Timothy's ministry and by extension our ministry as well. And then second, he goes into the details of what it means to be faithful in fulfilling 
the ministry that God has entrusted to us. So that's kind of our roadmap as we work our way through this this morning. We're going to jump into God's word, but before we do that, let's, let's pause and pray. Please pray with me. God, as we consider your word this morning, I ask that you would speak to us, and we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you still speak through it, God, that it remains just as true, just as essential, just as life-giving today as it was 2,000 years ago, just as, as much as it will be in 2,000 years should you tarry for that long. And we ask that as we open your word, that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would help us to see how we might take the truths of this passage, that we would uh, apply them to our lives, whether that's through rebuke and through correction or whether that's through encouragement and comfort. Jesus, we just say thank you for the gospel. Bless this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so first... Paul describes the setting of Timothy's ministry in verses 3 and 4. Notice this connection between this passage, these few verses, and what Paul has already said in verses 1 and 2. Verse 3 starts with this word for, which is a reminder. It's calling back to what he has already said to this point. So last week, Paul is, is telling Timothy this incredibly powerful, incredibly weighty calling uh, to faithfully live out his calling as a pastor. And central to that is this charge to proclaim the word of God and to do it when it's convenient and easy and also to do it when it's inconvenient and when it isn't easy. And he gives the reason why in verses three and four, for the time is coming When people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. My faith background is a a bit of an oddity. I grew up in a relatively theologically conservative church in small town Iowa that was a part of a very theologically progressive denomination. And it seemed like every few months, the denomination would, would make a decision or make a, a change uh, where they would begin to, to leave behind orthodoxy, what we should believe as Christians. And, and this church in, in uh, southwest Iowa, rather than making the, the, the decision to, to leave that denomination, they instead began to, to list or give these statements from the elders every single time there was a change in the denomination. And almost without fail... The, the elder would get up in the middle of, of the church service to address whatever change was taking place, and they would read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And after the church service, everyone was uh, just in this buzz, and they're like, wow, this passage, it, it's meant for us. It's amazing how applicable God's word is. It, it addresses the struggles that we're facing today. And, and now, after becoming a Christian, I'm like, well, yeah, obviously, God's word still speaks today, and it is so easy for us to see how this passage works itself out in in our church today. We we don't have to look too too hard to to see ways that that the church has has strayed from the truth, that it's leaving behind the message of the true gospel. And yet we would be wrong to conclude that this is something that is new. Paul is writing to Timothy almost 2,000 years ago, and he's making this sharp contrast between verses 3 and 4 and verse 5. He says, on one hand, Timothy, this is the direction that the world is going, verses 3 and 4, but as for you, Timothy, this is what it would look like for you to live out your calling. 
And this really shouldn't surprise us either. Paul lists these movements in this text in verses 3 and 4 from the truth to lies that we see all the time. It's not so much caused by a specific culture or a specific group of people as much as it is it's caused by the rebellion of human hearts against God. And this is one of Paul's lifelong messages in the Bible, in his ministry. Paul knows that rejection of the gospel goes hand in hand with faithfulness to the gospel. And so as he's writing to the church in Corinth, he says this, but we preach Christ crucified, which by the way is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So the message of the gospel is so otherworldly that it takes a miracle, a literal act of God for people to not just reject it out of hand. Why is that? Well, for some people, it's because the message of the gospel is foolish. Who would worship a crucified Messiah? Who would follow a crucified king? Who could believe this nonsense about a resurrection? Who could believe in a loving God when there's so much wrong in this world? It seems downright foolish to many people. But I think there's a greater reason why so many people, including us, have this temptation to reject the message of the gospel. It's not just because we think it is nonsense, but because we still have this rebellious disposition toward God. When Jesus claims to have ultimate authority over our lives, that's something that can be hard to swallow. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if he's true, he says that the call of the gospel is to come and die, then of course there's going to be pushback. If to follow Jesus means to come and die, then there will be pushback to that calling. Of course, there's going to be people who seek out an alternative, a less earth-shattering message. And that's the heart of what Paul is saying here in verses 3 and 4. I mentioned that there's these movements in this text that Paul is describing. I just want us to consider two here. First, we will see people abandon the true gospel for a message that they want to hear. So people will abandon the true gospel so that they can choose a message that they would like to hear instead. That's what Paul is saying in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This language shows us that this is not a decision that is driven by intellectual opposition to the gospel, even though people will oftentimes disguise it as that. But instead, it is a moral decision. This language of endure reveals the heart type of this type of person that they no longer want to bear with. They no longer want to put up with sound teaching. They grow annoyed with the message of the gospel. Perhaps a, a more literal way of putting it in this passage is that their patience with the Bible, their patience with God is growing thin because of the challenging nature of, of so much of God's word. We can learn a lot about how we should approach the Bible by looking at this and, and considering the opposite, can't we? When we come across a part of the Bible that we don't like, it doesn't sit well with us, it, it, it's because it's asking us to do something that, that is uncomfortable, that we're not particularly fond of, how are we going to respond? Well, according to this passage, it's a somewhat crude image, but it's a helpful one. Are you going to stick with the Bible? Are you, to borrow Paul's language, are you going to bear with the Bible, even the parts that are uncomfortable for you, or are you going to go off and go a different way? 
R.C. Sproul once helpfully described the tension that we all must address when we are reading the Bible. He says, when there's something in the Word of God I don't like, the problem is not with the Word of God, the problem is with me. And that's a hard line. It's a hard calling for us, one that's only worth it if we consider the alternative, which is what Paul describes at the end of verse 3. Those who no longer bear with the challenging portions of sound teaching, of healthy teaching, have turned aside to what? Well, it says us that they have turned aside to teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. The language of this verse shows how unless this, uh, how useless this movement from truth to lies really is. Paul tells us that this type of heart is like someone who goes to buffets and begins to accumulate various teachers, various teachings that they like. They skip over the things that they don't particularly like, that they don't really care for. And when they're done, they have a plate that is piled high of exactly what they want and nothing that they need. Nothing that will challenge them. Nothing that will make them uncomfortable. Everything that says exactly what they want. And before we consider people out there, we have to first consider ourselves. Because this is the heart that each and every one of us struggles with. That we are prone to chase after teaching that will tell us what we want to hear. Paul mentions a second movement in this passage, verse 4. He says, when people wander from the truth, they don't go find another truth. They wander toward lies. He says it this way in verse 4, and they will wander, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He uses this imagery of someone who is walking on a path well-marked paths are, are relatively easy for us to follow, but if you wander off the trail, well, then look out. You can, you can lose your way in no time at all. And this is the image that Paul uses here, that there are these people who are once on this well-marked path of the gospel, then they turn off of the path. And why is that? Well, give us the answer in verse 3, it's because they don't particularly like the message of the gospel, the demands of the gospel, the declarations of the gospel, that this path of following Jesus isn't living up to their expectations. And so they decide to, to look for another path and they begin to wander. And pretty soon they end up in one of these myths. The word myth in the Bible, it, it's not used very often, but every single time the Bible uses it, it's never a good thing. Peter probably gives us the best definition in 2 Peter. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, were, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So for the New Testament authors, myths are lies. They might be creative. They might be enticing, but they have no basis in reality. Notice in, in that passage from 2 Peter how Peter contrasts myth, something that is made up, with the reality of, no, we actually saw Jesus. Truth versus myth. Truth versus lies. In 2 Timothy, Paul doesn't go into the specifics of what these myths are, and I think that's intentional because the focus isn't on the content of these myths, but instead on the lack of truth that they contain. And wouldn't you know it, there's plenty of untruths peddled as gospel truths, both inside and outside the church today. 
And this movement, just like the previous movement in verse 3, it gives us a picture of what faithful living looks like. How important it is for us to stay on the path. How important it is to stay rooted and, and grounded in Scripture. No wonder Paul, while he's writing to Timothy, giving him this charge in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, focuses on the faithful proclamation of the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. Paul is, is warning Timothy of what he will face when he's in pastoral ministry. That people are going to be drawn away from the truth. They're going to be drawn toward lies of what they want to hear. And before we keep going, might I just suggest that that's a warning for each and every one of us. Again, that temptation is one that each and every one of us will face. The dangerous thing about what Paul is describing here is just how insidious it is. That this leads us, it's the thing that's leading us away from Jesus is, our, is primarily our own passions our own desires, and we have to constantly be on guard. We have to constantly run back to the Bible. We have to constantly remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. My favorite hymn is Come Thou Founts, and, and my favorite line from that hymn is, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And the reason why that is so powerful for me is because I see that in my own life. So often, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And the prayer in that song is, take my, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It is so easy to leave the path of the truth for something that is easier for us to swallow. So we must constantly be on guard. If we're going to be faithful in ministry, Paul gives us some keys on how to do that in the second part of, of this passage in verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Here Paul lists four commands for Timothy as, as he is seeking to be faithful. I want us to consider each and every one of these just, just briefly in turn. The first one is this. If you want to remain faithful to your calling, then you have to remain alert and be in control of yourself. You have to remain alert and in control of yourself. Paul tells Timothy to always be sober-minded. This term, sober-minded, means to be self-controlled. Says Timothy, you're going to be going against the trajectory of the world, the trajectory of those who are around you. And if you're going to remain faithful to your calling, then you have to remain on guard. You have to remain alert. If you let your guard down, then you are prone to wander. You are prone to go, go astray. And I'm convinced that the growth of self-control is one of the most crucial, most important ways that the Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives, transforms our lives. And I'll be honest, I'll just put my cards on the table. Maybe part of that is because my kids are all very young and self-control is oftentimes lacking in our homes. So I might overemphasize the importance of self-control. But I think self-control is so important because it encompasses all of life. Self-control is the key to living a life with a purpose, not just letting life happen to you. So let me give you a, a small non-spiritual, I hope it's non-spiritual, example from our lives this past week. 
Many of you know, uh, my family, we're moving across town um, later this, oh, oh my, it's not later this month, it's in a week. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, it's in less than a week. Okay, uh, ser- <laughs> seriously, um, I should wrap this up. Um, <laughs> Now, I don't know if you realize this, uh, but, but packing with, five, with children, uh, three children, five and under, is not exactly the most productive thing, especially weather's finally been nice for a good chunk of the last couple of weeks. And so each night this past week, Crystal and I, we have resolved, we have committed ourselves around supper time that, you know what, after the kids are in bed, we'll take about 45 minutes, just 45 minutes each night, and we are going to pack. And as long as we do that, we'll be in a good place when it's time for us to move. Fast forward two hours. The kids are finally in bed. It's, it's 8.30, and we find ourselves in what seems like this internal war of epic proportions. We could do what we said we would, even though it would be inconvenient, but that couch is calling our names. That ice cream is calling our names. So what are we going to do? The question really is, who's in control, isn't it? Is it Jordan, he's living purposely, even though it is inconvenient at times, or is it Jordan's passions? Is it Jordan's love for ice cream with Snickers and Reese's, and don't tell my kids, but they're Butterfingers as well? It's a battle of self-control. It's the same thing in so much of life. Are you going to live purposefully or are you just going to let life happen to you? Are you going to be self-controlled by choosing intentionally to follow Jesus, to make the right decision, or are you going to let yourself be controlled by your circumstances or by others or by your weaknesses or by your passions Paul is telling Timothy that if he is going to be faithful to his calling, he has to be self-controlled. He has to intentionally follow Jesus. Second, if you want to remain faithful to your calling, endure hardship. This is one of the big themes in 2 Timothy, isn't it? Hardship is coming. Hardship is here. And if you are going to continue to follow Jesus, it will continue. No longer, no matter how long you follow Jesus, hardship will be a part of it as long as you are faithful to the gospel. And yet that's not a reason to walk away from the gospel. Instead, that is a reason to resolve to endure hardship as a commitment to Jesus himself. And so Paul is telling Timothy, if you're going to remain faithful to the calling that God has placed on your life, then you have to recognize that there is some hardship, that there is some suffering that will come with the territory. And if we read verses 3 and 4, this shouldn't surprise us. When we look at the setting of what ministry is like, then of course there are going to be times when hardship comes our way for the sake of the gospel. And when we consider Timothy's life and what Timothy was experiencing as Paul is writing to him in this letter, I think there's good reason to believe that the hardship he experienced was primarily verbal, not physical. You look at this letter, if you just read through the four chapters, notice how often Paul is focusing on words. He focuses on Timothy using the right words. He focuses on Timothy enduring the words of other people. It seems like Timothy, for him, hardship is primarily being slandered by false teachers. It's being mocked. It's being belittled. It's being derided and on and on. 
And I think that's important for us because in our current culture, it's going to be the exact same thing. That's the hardship that we will face. It's snide comments. It's weird stares. It's being the butt of jokes. It's mockery and derision. If you're going to be faithful to your calling, you must endure the hardship that comes with the gospel. Third, Paul says, if you want to remain faithful to your calling, you have to do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, the previous two are applicable no matter what your calling is. This one is very clearly focused on Timothy's specific circumstances. The question, of course, is what exactly does Paul mean when he says to do the work of an evangelist? And for us, when we hear that word, a very specific type of person comes to mind when we think of an evangelist. I think of someone like Billy Graham or like Greg Laurie. The word evangelist conjures up these images of an itinerant preacher going from place to place, preaching the gospel across the globe to people who don't know Jesus yet. But is that what Paul has in mind when he mentions this word evangelist? This is a relatively rare word in the Bible. It's only used two other times. It's used once in Acts chapter 21. It's used another time in Ephesians chapter 4. In Acts chapter 21, it's used to refer to Philip. You're probably familiar with Philip. He is one of the seven that is chosen at the beginning of Acts. He's the one who goes and shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, and then later on he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist. In Ephesians chapter 4, it refers to this office in the church that is different than shepherd and teacher. But perhaps the most important thing or the most helpful thing for understanding what exactly Paul means when he talks about an evangelist is the meaning of the word itself. The word evangelism comes from the exact same root word as the word gospel. It's literally just referring to someone who proclaims the gospel, someone who speaks the gospel. So for Timothy to be faithful to his calling, it means that he has to discharge his responsibility to proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear the gospel. And the question, of course, is who needs to hear the gospel? It's not just those who are not yet a part of the church. It's, it's everyone, those who are in the church and those who are outside of the church. J.I. Packer was this theologian who passed away last year. He describes the importance of the gospel in faithful preaching when he says this. If one preaches the Bible biblically, one cannot help preaching the gospel all the time. And every sermon will be, at least by implication, evangelistic. Why is that? It's because if Timothy is going to take seriously his charge to preach the whole Bible, if he is going to be faithful to the entire Bible, then he can't help but be evangelistic. He can't help but share the story of sinners who are in desperate need of a Savior and what that Savior has done to bring people back into the family of God. So for Paul, in this context, he's writing to Timothy, his words here are just a restatement of the importance of being faithful to this ministry of proclamation of the Bible. Saying, Timothy, if you want to be faithful to your calling to fulfill your ministry, you're going to have to be gospel-centered in every single thing that you do, both in the church and without. And that is applicable for all of us, no matter what our specific calling is. He gives us one final charge. It's this, if you want to remain faithful to your calling, 
fulfill your ministry. Just fulfill your ministry. I love this picture. One pastor points out that this word fulfill here is oftentimes used in that day to to refer to the fulfillment of a promise or the repayment of a debt. So what Paul is saying to Timothy here, saying, you know what, When, when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus, he placed a claim on your life. You said that you would surrender everything to him, and now you are his, that he is your Lord, that he can ask anything that he wants of you. And Timothy, if you are going to be faithful to that calling, if you're going to be faithful in fulfilling your ministry, then you have to live out what God has entrusted to you. Same thing is true for all of us that God has placed a claim on our lives when we come to him, when we believe in the gospel, that he has a claim on your life and is asking you to fulfill the ministry that he has entrusted to you. One thing I love about this phrase is fulfill your ministry. It's just how generic this word ministry is. Just literally means service. That's not referring to someone who is a pastor for Timothy. It's referring to his word-based ministry. And yet this word ministry just, just refers to service. It's not something that's reserved for those who are missionaries or those who are pastors, those who hold a unique role in the church. It's, it's for all of God's people. And the implications of that are just absolutely significant because it implies that all of us, have been entrusted with ministry. All of us have been entrusted with service for the work of the king. And yes, that ministry, that service is going to look different for every single person. But it is no less true that God has entrusted each of us a role to play in his kingdom. And Paul says, if you are going to be faithful to your calling, if you're going to fulfill your ministry, then you have to live out the service that God has entrusted to you. And that's why we began this morning just with that simple charge, fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to you. It's not a charge that says, well, if you've been entrusted with ministry, if God has decided that you have a role to play, then be faithful in your calling. There's no if. It's a because. Because God has entrusted you with a role to play. Because God has given you a part of service in the kingdom, be faithful in living out the charge that he has given to you. Fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to you. And as as we close, I just want us to consider asking ourselves the question, am am I contributing to kingdom ministry? Am I participating in the work that God is doing, that God has asked me to do? You could ask every single person in this room, everyone who's watching online, what exactly God has called them to do, and you will get completely different answers for every single 
person. What's not important is, is so much the, the specifics. It's just the reality of responding to the gospel and doing what God has entrusted to us. That we are uniquely gifted and prepared in a way that no one else is to live out the calling that God has on our lives. Fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to you. One of the clearest examples for me of the, the vastly different but equally crucial callings that God places on people's lives is a story of two brothers, Jim Elliott and Bert Elliott. Probably familiar with the story of Jim Elliott. In the 1950s, Jim Elliott was a member of a group of missionaries who traveled to reach an unreached people group in Ecuador with the gospel. And Jim was killed before his ministry even really began. But because of his faithfulness, because of his death and the death of others for the gospel, the gospel began to take root in that tribe. And God used the gospel, used their deaths for the gospel to soften the hearts of that tribe, to soften the hearts of that people, to prepare the way for future missionaries to share the gospel with these lives, and these lives were eventually transformed. And one of the things that people always seem to remember about Jim Elliott is his life was just immortalized by what he wrote in his journal before he went onto the mission field. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he lived that out with his life. So we, many of us know the story of Jim Elliott. What about Bert Elliott? Anyone heard of Bert Elliott? Raise your hand if you've heard of him. Okay, I hadn't either. Uh, Bert was Jim's older brother. And before Jim was called to Ecuador, he was invited by a missionary to go and serve in Peru. And he felt like God was calling him to go and to serve. And so he and his wife moved to Peru, where they faithfully ministered in relative obscurity for decades. But over the course of those decades, Bert and his family helped plant over 170 churches in Peru. And no one really knows his name. Millions know the name of his brother, Jim. Very few know the name of Bert. God had very different callings for each of them. And God used the faithfulness of each of them. I'm not saying one is better than the other. God had a different plan, a different calling, and God used their faithfulness to that calling in a way that he allowed the gospel to go forth and to flourish. And it's because they were faithful in fulfilling the ministry that God had entrusted to them. What about you? What about you? How is God calling you to contribute to kingdom ministry? What would it look like for you to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to you? What would it look like for you to have this heart of faithfulness in fulfilling what God has entrusted to you? Let's be a people who take seriously the charge that God has given to us to live out this gospel calling, whatever it looks like. Would you pray with me? 
Father, I ask now that you would help us, that you would give us eyes to see how you are calling us to serve, how you are calling us to join in the work of the kingdom. God, we thank you for what you have done. Help us to be faithful in fulfilling the ministry that you have entrusted to us. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.